Congress was under siege, the president was impeached, and the Supreme Court argues over whether courts can be used by litigants arguing over $1. We have a lot to unpack in this week's debriefing of the law. Welcome to this week's edition of Debriefing the Law. I am Joel Oster. And I'm Mackenzie Smith. I was wondering if you're going to remember your line there. You did a good job, Mackenzie. Yeah. Hey, uh, I know it's been a, it's early morning. What, what time is it uh, over there in, in Pennsylvania? It's about quarter of nine. Okay, well, maybe it's not that early. I had to get up early for this. I'm doing a webinar right after this podcast, and so I, we had to get up early. And so, yeah, it was 6 o'clock, and I rolled over in my bed and looked at, oh, crap, i got to get up here and, and <laughs> do this podcast. But, hey, we are alive and well, and Mackenzie, we have a lot to talk about. I, I know you are just chomping on the bed. There's a lot that went on this week. We are going to talk about a siege on the Capitol, a second impeachment, a lawsuit for $1.00 and a lawsuit for $1.3 billion. We got a lot to talk about this week. A lot happened uh, in the world of law. Let's start off with the siege on the Capitol. Mackenzie, have you ever seen anything like this? I mean, what were your thoughts when you heard that there was a siege on the U.S. Capitol building? You know, I was actually uh, at the office here, and I was listening to the congressional hearing live at that time. So I actually heard, you know, the House of Representatives be adjourned and kind of no one knew what was going on. And then I started getting text messages that protesters were in the building. So I turned on um, the video to actually watch what was happening. And I, I've, I mean, I've seen images like that in from other countries, um, but nothing, nothing like that ever here. And it was um, horrifying. I mean, I just... I- I just was had my hand over my mouth, literally. I got to tell you, I don't know if it's the COVID or, or what, but my thought was, whoop de doo I mean, it really was. It was like, I, I almost like, it, it's been so comical this last year with all the events going on with COVID. I just thought, yeah, what's next? Of course, they're going to have people dressed up in animal skins, carrying the, the speaker's lectern around. I mean, what an appropriate fitting to what we've been going through in our in our lifetime, uh, in, in our world. Um, but a lot, of, a lot of good has come from this siege. For example, a lot of people learned how to spell capital. Uh, did you know how to spell capital? correctly i did but i'm a grammar nerd so it doesn't really count (laughs) (laughs) i I heard someone talk about at least now we know the proper way to spell it you know my thought was what 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 is the right way i have no (laughs) idea is this like a a test uh is it so i spelled it with an al and then uh, someone said no it's actually uh, an ol and so is there a way to remember that i don't know i don't know it's only for that building though i think that it's ol Really? What do you think? For so, everything else, it's AL, right? No, 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 no. So uh, the, the capital of Kansas is Topeka. Are you telling me that the, the capital in Kansas is spelled with an AL? I think so. As compared to, like, let's say, capital like money. Uh, you know, obviously, money would be AL. No, All I right. think it's always like, I think only the capital like, building is OL. But, 
and and it's capitalized, obviously. But you know, I my internet is down right now, so I can't even fact check myself. <laughs> oh my! <laughs> all right, I'm not as much of a grammar nerd as I thought. Hey, but you know what? I'm learning because I when I when I started this podcast, I assumed it, that was the easy distinction. If you're talking about the capital of a state or of a government, it's O L. But if you're talking about money, it's A L. Now I'm gonna have to go back and look again and see what the actual right answer is. That's why we do these podcasts. It just makes us a lot smarter people. But it, it was surreal. I mean, that imagery of, I'm thinking of the one where this guy was carrying around the um, the Speaker Pelosi's lectern and just running through the halls of Congress. That photograph is going to go down in history. It's one of the most compelling photographs we have ever seen. Yeah, it was. Um, you know, some of the imagery is really cartoonish. And then, but if you were, which is so, it's like a cognitive dissonance because, you know, you see that photo that's gone viral of the, the man holding the podium and he's got like this goofy grin on his face and it's hard not to chuckle. But then at the same time, like at how ridiculous it is. Right. But then at the same time, it's like, wait a minute, people died. Okay. First of all, there were pipe bombs and Molotov cocktails found all over the city near federal buildings. Um, You know, obviously there was an insurrection and it just, you know, reveals how little respect people have for their government, which is horrifying. And for the democratic process, which was happening inside, which is equally horrifying. Um, And, you know, the the whole thing, I mean, there's also that image of the man waving and carrying a huge Confederate flag inside, like right Right, right, outside the Senate chamber. And that to me, I mean, was, you know, when I was speaking with a friend of mine, that evening, I said, I, the only other time I've felt like that sitting in my office watching something like that happen live is the day of the Sandy Hook shooting. Like I, that same just cold t- horror that goes through your body watching that. And it was to me that was um, reminiscent of the scene in The Sound of Music where the captain comes back from like a business trip or something and he, right. and he they have put the Nazi flag on his house and he rips it down in anger and tears it. I think he tears it in half or throws it away or something. And that was like the, the feeling I had. That's the scene that I thought of immediately. Like, you know, this should not be happening. This is horrifying. We have fought so hard in this country to prevent that type of imagery from ever having a place in our history and it happened and it did seem so surreal it's yeah. like um is this really real is this a reality tv show and again my thought was it's just another item in in 2020 slash 2021 uh but did you see the press conference of the lawyer who represented the guy who was who's carrying the lectern did you, did you see did that not. press conference? I did All right, not. You got to watch it. We covered it in our update yesterday. Uh, it is a hilarious uh, press conference. Because here's the, imagine you, McKenzie, with a lawyer for this guy. And he's holding a press conference. Which, you know, of course, everyone's going to watch it and listen. What, what do you have to say? How are you going to possibly defend yourself? And the lawyer was asked about, well, there's a photograph of your client carrying the lectern. You know, Nancy Pelosi's lectern run, running through the Capitol. Is that going to be a problem? His answer was priceless. His answer was, well, yeah, we're not magicians. That, that, that photograph is going to be a problem for us. Yeah, I, I can't imagine being a lawyer in that case uh, with that photograph. I don't even know what they would do. 
Well, well we well, are lawyers. You know, I mean, there's still a place. Look, like if if you do believe in our constitution and our system of law and government, then you believe that every single person that was involved in the riot slash insurrection slash siege, whatever you want to call it, has a right to remain innocent until proven guilty, to due process, to confront their accusers. And that includes every single person from the guy carrying the lectern to the president to Rudy Giuliani, who said, let's have trial by combat. And in terms of criminal charges, that is just as important. So I think, you know, I'm not in any way, like, let me be unequivocal, in any way defending anything that any of these people did. However, you know, they still, they're still have a right to counsel. They still have a right to make the government prove its case beyond a reasonable doubt. Like those things are immutable under our system and they are something that should not be forsaken ever depending on, you know, no matter who the defendant is or what the crime is that they were charged of. So, you know, there's a place, I don't know if I I would hold a press conference necessarily, but like, you know, there's a place for, they certainly deserve competent counsel for sure. Hey, spoken of uh, by a true lawyer, uh, I'm sure they can give you a call uh, if you need some some new uh, case where I'm not sure you, uh, that involves airline industry at all, but uh, well, we are lawyers and that's what we do. We come together every week to just kind of debrief what happened in the world, and then you just comment on the legal ramifications of it. And so let, let's talk, let's unpack the legal ramifications of this riot. The first thought I have is why is this different than the rioting and looting that we have seen all year long? I, I mean, in my mind, we've gone through an entire year of, of rioting and looting, and we've even seen comments from various Persons in power, um, you know, definitely in the mainstream media and also some politicians saying that the rioting is okay, it's looting, it's understandable that these people are upset um, because the underlying cause is worth, the. Uh, it, it justifies the, the rioting and the looting. Um, how is this any different than the rioting and the looting that we've seen all year long? How much time you got? Um, <laughs> <laughs> so couple of thoughts. Um, I think, you know, anyone who in my, this is my personal opinion. Okay. okay. Any, anyone, whether a private citizen or a public servant who condones or promotes violence is at the least misguided, right? I don't think that violence is a solution. Um, right. I don't think it's productive, uh, to the ultimate goal of any, you know, movement or um, you know, ideology or anything. Okay, so period. But um, in terms of individuals who are committing crimes, such as vandalism, theft, arson, you know, that is in terms of the crime committed, the crime is the crime. Like there's no difference if you, um, you know, commit theft, it doesn't really matter right. a lot. I mean, unless there's some kind of terroristic or, um, you know, it's a hate crime, there's generally no difference in terms of the criminality. Like what right. penalty you're going to get for the crime depends on the crime and then obviously your criminal history. Now, in this case, 
when there are individuals attacking the United States Capitol, like this is federal property. So it's going to be a federal crime is my understanding. So that might be different than a state crime. Right. So So the the attacks on like, let's say, Portland, where they took over their their governmental buildings there. And uh, I'm forgetting some of the other locations that might have where it might have occurred. Again, that would be on state property, state run, uh, maybe a different law, uh, at least definitely different actors who might be enforcing it. The federal government is going to be much more stringent in enforcing their laws, uh, maybe than a state in in enforcing their own state laws. Uh, But so, yeah, that that is a a point of differentiation. do you uh, agree? Would you agree with me on this one that um, that the rioting is just it's just bad? I mean, the the looting is it's bad. It's wrong to resort to violence. Because in my perspective, again, I don't want to step on anyone's toes. It seems like the conservatives have roundly criticized this latest uh, example of rioting looting. No doubt about it. They uh, they've come out emphatically saying this is horrendous. This is bad. In fact, you're seeing groundswell support now to impeach the president over this. Several Republicans joined the impeachment effort, and you're going to probably see even more. We're going to talk about that here in just a bit. Um, but it, I'm not sure that's been consistent year long by the other side. I, any thoughts on that? Well, um, You know, I think it's been pretty consistent on the other side, but I also think, you know, and it's, I don't want to get into like an ethics or morality discussion about, you know, violence and whether all violence is equal because like, it's obviously not like self-defense is technically violence. Like if you're attacking me and trying to kill me, you know, I can defend myself even if it means seriously injuring or killing you. And that's not the same as like, what I'm doing is not the same as what you're doing. Right. So I'm not, I'm not comparing that to anything that's gone on in terms of rioting, but I'm just saying like, as a baseline fact, like it's not necessarily true that all violence has equal moral culpability, but I am not in a position that. to discuss, you know, morality of anything. But I I do think that there is a difference. And again, I don't think that any public servant who is in any way condoning violent acts is, I think that's a, at a minimum misguided. Um, but there is a difference between someone being asked a question in an interview or when they're on, you know, the radio or at a press conference and, you know, violence is already happening and someone being asked asked a question and giving maybe, you know, an emotional response that's not necessarily helpful or that is going to be used against them as a soundbite. It's certainly not, you know, in their own political best interest at the end of the day because it ends up being used against them, right? But to say something like, you know, there are racial disparities in the criminal justice system, and we as a society have been too slow to address them. Like, that's true. It's true. There are racial disparities in the criminal justice system. And in a lot of respects, we've been way too slow to address them. And so I'm not saying that makes it okay to burn down a police station, it's never okay to burn down a police station. It's criminal, and those people, you know, should be held to account. But that's something that is not—it um, doesn't precede the violence, so it can't be causative, right, because it doesn't come before. 
Okay. Um, it comes after. It's not in geographical proximity. Like the person is on giving a radio interview. They're not addressing a mob of armed, right. angry, you know, rioters. So there are a lot of differences here. If we're talking about incitement, like a statement can be misguided, politically inopportune, um, and, you know, people can have their opinions about the morality of a statement, but it, when it's not, it, there's no contemporaneousness and there's no geographical proximity and the person is addressing a reporter and not a mob, there right. are some real substantive and legal differences that I think have been very much glossed over here. And again, like I want to be very careful. I right, am right. not commenting on the president's criminal liability. Like, I am not in a position to do that. Like I said, he is entitled in in terms of a criminal charge to due process under the law and to be considered innocent until proven guilty. Like, I well, fully believe that. But I think there are, like, you know, it's been glossed over that the huge substantive differences here in the comments by public servants that have been made. Well, you might not be in a position to comment on the criminality, but... That's what we're going to do next. Uh, but you Great. make a really <laughs> you, you make a really good point that you got to consider the physical proximity on, uh, on where these statements are being made. I mean, the classic example is crying fire in the middle of the theater. If you were to go on TV and say, "Hey, there's a fire," it's going to be you know at the theater down the street. No one cares, right? It's not really going to incite any kind of immediate response. If you're in the theater, you stand up and you shout fire. That's going to cause a problem, right? Then and there, people got to get up and start running. So you got to consider the proximity of of the statements that are made to the harm that might ensue from those uh, statements. So that's actually a very excellent uh, point. But I want to I want to go there, and so let's talk about what Trump actually said, and then let's just comment on whether or not we actually think this is, this is this incites violence. This incited a riot. He said, we won this election and we won it by a landslide, he then said. These are all the statements that he made during that um, uh, that uh, address to the, the rally. Uh, we will stop the steal. You might remember him, him saying that. We will oh, never give up. We will never concede. It doesn't happen. If you don't fight like hell, you're not going to have a country anymore. And then he said, we want to go over to the Capitol and peacefully and patriotically make your voices heard. And so that I, I kind of focused on that part easily uh, earlier. It's like he's trying to tell the, the people, hey, look, we're going to go over there, but we got to do it peacefully and patriotically and make our voices heard. And then he said, we're going to walk down to the Capitol. And by the way, this actually shows Capitol was spelled correctly. So whoever typed this did a really good job. He, they knew the difference. And we're going to cheer on our brave senators and congressmen and women. And we're probably not going to be cheering so much for some of them. Now, in context, all of those statements, is that criminal? I mean, yeah, he said that he said some things like, hey, the election was stolen from us. And many of us think that if you had evidence for that, you you probably should have brought it in court. I mean, you know, that they didn't. They just made wild allegations in the public, never really filed fraud allegations in court. Uh, that would have been the place to do that. But they like to tell the, the public through press releases and through rallies that, hey, the election was stolen from us. And I get how that incites a crowd uh, to, to say something was stolen 
stolen from you and you got to fight like hell. But then he also said, we got to peacefully and patriotically make our voices heard and we're going to go over there and cheer them on. So I don't know. What, what are your thoughts about his actual comments at the rally? Okay, So we're talking about criminal incitement and we're not right. talking about impeachment yet. Right. OK, well, so exactly. let's... We're, cause we're talking about is were his statements constitutionally protected speech. Right. OK, so. Well, yeah. So in a criminal sense, and I because I am a nerd, I did look up the federal charge for incitement of riot. And that's why we love you and have you on because you're a nerd. (laughs) So the person to me, it's really a mens rea issue. (laughs) Nerd alert. So in in criminal law, as uh, an element of virtually every crime, the common or the Commonwealth. See, I'm in Pennsylvania. The government has to prove uh, beyond a reasonable doubt that the defendant who's being accused of the crime had the requisite mens rea. What does that mean? It basically means the state of mind. So, in order to commit a crime, you have to have some kind of um, quote unquote criminal intent, and that can range from negligence, which might be you know like a DUI that might be negligent or reckless, which would be the next level up to knowing, which means you know you knew that something bad right. was going to happen, that the result, and you did it anyway. To intentional, which sometimes means pretty much knowing, and sometimes right. means specific intent, which is you actually wanted the specific result to occur. Like that was what you actually want. So that would be like murder. Okay. Like I really want this person to die. And I'm going to murder them. So that would be specific intent. So to me, um, the incitement statute, you know, says basically that the person has to intend or like know and do it anyway that this riot is going to occur. And so when you have a mens rea that's pretty high up there on the scale, like it's not, I mean, we could almost all get on board with the fact that like, Trump was negligent, right? Like, ne- or, or okay. even reckless. But the statute right. requires more. And people who commit crimes that require intent or knowing um, don't usually say, like, and I know this is going to happen and I'm doing it anyway. Or, like, dear diary, right, right. I'm going right. to premeditate <laughs> a murder now and then I'm going to go commit it. So those cases are circumstantial when it comes to the state of mind. And so you have to look at all of the circumstances, like the things that I would want to look at in court is, you know, how how soon before Trump got up and spoke, did Rudy Giuliani say, we're going to go have a trial by combat? You know, what when when he said we're going to go peacefully protest, was it kind of, you know, buried under the other more bellicose language? Did he know that these um, people at his protests were armed. Um, I think the fact that there's witness testimony that he then went back to the White House and watched the rioting with glee is what I read. Um, That would factor in as a circumstantial piece of circumstantial evidence. And so it would be up to a jury ultimately, which I don't think it's ever going to get there, but it would be up to a jury to put all these pieces of circumstantial evidence together and say, okay, well, are we beyond a reasonable doubt that he knew that a riot, a violent mob was going to happen and he continued to make these statements anyway? And I think that's ultimately what would have to be proven in criminal court. 
Okay, now, and I think and, and the standard in impeachment is is much different, and we can talk right, about right, that. But it's right, I think well, you know it's not a slam dunk in terms of a criminal case. It's just not. I mean, these are would be very difficult charges to prove. I don't think it's you know necessarily unprovable in this circumstance, but it you know it, it's let, not a slam dunk. Let's explore that a little bit because I actually think it is far from a slam dunk. I mean, I would think that his statements, uh, when you just look at them, they're they're pretty mild. Uh, and you re- you have seen very similar statements made by other people. Uh, and I, I get how you're saying, but in context, you got to consider everything. So here's a question I have for you as a former prosecutor. I don't have a lot of experience when it comes to criminal law. I've dabbled in a couple of cases, but I'm just my own malpractice case waiting to happen. I don't really practice in criminal law. I do constitutional law and I do civil law. So we have this idea in civil law that if you really haven't even stated a claim, right? I mean, your, 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 your argument is so weak. I'm going to file a motion to dismiss this claim. We're never even going to get to a jury because your, your argument is so weak. No reasonable person would ever find what you're saying to be, to be true. Does that a standard apply in the criminal context? In other words, could Trump say if charges were filed, no, look, the, 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 you don't have a claim. This is what I said. This is so far removed from a, from the requisite and knowing standard. We can't even submit this to a jury. It's not even to that point. Is there that element in criminal law where you can move to dismiss these charges without sending it to a jury? For sure. Yeah. And I don't uh, admittedly, you know, I don't know the exact procedure when it comes to federal charges because I was at a uh, I was a local prosecutor. So in um, in state procedure, you usually have uh, either what's called a preliminary hearing or a probable cause hearing. And that's where, you know, the government basically says, like, this is what happened. And this is that generally the evidence we have the defense can kind of put on a case, but usually they don't. And the standard is just, you know, is there probable cause even to bring these charges or are you way off base? Um, And even after that, the defendant can still file a habeas corpus petition saying, you know, there's no, I was wrongfully arrested or there's no probable cause or, you know, whatever. And I, I believe and imagine that there's a similar procedure under federal law to do that. So you can, um, and I don't know, I really, this is a very unique, I mean, let's, can we just like agree that he can pardon himself though? Like this is never going to happen, right? Well, he's not going to pardon himself. I, I think that would be, um, uh, I don't know, that actually is kind of a fascinating thing to think about, especially what I just said probably should never be said. Trump will never do blank line. That probably should never be said, right? Because we have no right. idea what he he might do. I would think that appearing before a rally uh, as they were about ready to storm the Capitol, not the brightest move for someone who might want to run again in four years. But um, uh, we, we can talk about that later. Hey, before we move on from this topic, uh, I, I probably I can guess what your, your response is going to be, but I want to go ahead and hear it anyways. So uh, Ayanna Presley, uh, she made a statement in, re- in regards to the Black Lives Matters protest that there needs to be unrest in the streets. Uh, And then I believe Maxine Waters also said something like if anybody, if you see anybody from that cabinet in a restaurant, in a department store, in a gasoline station, you get out and create a crowd and you push back on them and you tell them they're not welcome anymore anywhere. Now, some people could say this is some pretty hostile words and you're trying to incite unrest in the street. Uh, I I assume your response is going to be, but those were not done 
in the moment where those actual events might occur, and that makes these constitutionally protected. Maybe not the nicest thing to say, but but it's not legally actionable. Is that right? A hundred percent. And I think there's been, you know, discussion about the the seminal Supreme Court case Brandenburg Brandenburg versus Ohio. And I believe the court in that case set forth like a two-prong test for when uh, speech can be considered actionable incitement um, because otherwise it is protected by the First Amendment. And, you know, one of those, one of the factors, I think it's the second factor, is like the violence has to be reasonably likely to imminently occur. Okay. Right. So you have to, there have to be circumstances that you, you know, you, these specific people are going to then commit violence. Like it's almost a solicitation issue. Um, And I think, you know, in those circumstances, and, and again, I don't know the full context of the statements. I don't know whether they were in interviews or at rallies. I don't know. So it's, it's hard to evaluate those. Um, But it would be, you know, difficult if not impossible, to bring charges for incitement when you're not, when there's no imminent threat of, of violence. Okay, so we might be on the same page that legally any kind of action against Trump for committing a crime uh, might be on shaky terms. It, it might go to a jury. Uh, again, it's, it's definitely not a slam dunk case. Uh, I, I think we're probably on the same page there. And as you alluded to, that's not the final issue here because the bigger issue is impeachment, and it doesn't have to be a crime for it to be impeachable. In fact, we've, we're kind of all experts on impeachment now. Uh, as we know, the standard for impeachment is somewhat intentionally vague. The founders thought that that was best to have a vague standard. That way it could be applied in any kind of situation where it is warranted. It's really a political question. Does what happened just so, is it so repugnant to the, the public, the people, that this person should no longer hold office? And so let's go now to the issue of impeachment. And, and so... um. And in the context of, I believe you mentioned earlier off air that Obama made some statements earlier uh, about race and about cops. And then pretty soon after that, uh, several police officers were gunned down in Dallas. And a lot of people thought, well, he should have been impeached for that. He should have known better that you can't make those statements, especially the statements that he made that some people would say were inaccurate, although maybe well-intentioned were, were not exactly accurate as to what actually happened. He should have known that the consequences of what he was saying. I'm playing devil's advocate here a little bit, but what is your thought on should Trump then be impeached for being so stupid not to recognize the consequences of what he was going, of what he was doing? Well, uh, I actually view the Trump situation a little bit differently and I was kind of disappointed with the article of impeachment, and I'll explain that. But going back to 2016, to what Obama said, I will say, I have looked at what he said, and he, it was right after the um, killing of Philando Castile, and then there was another one that happened in close proximity. And what Barack Obama said, and I'm not, it's not going to be a, you know, very specifically accurate quote, but essentially what he said is, that we should all be troubled um, by these occurrences, that they're not isolated incidents, and that they are symptomatic of broader racial disparities in the criminal justice system. And then he went on to cite specific statistics 
that were accurate and showed that, you know, people of color are more likely by, you know, some percentage to be pulled over to have, you know, uh, to being uh, have criminal sentences that are 10 percent longer for the exact same crimes with the exact same criminal histories. You know, he went on. It was a, a thought out statement. And right. you know, some people might not believe or agree that there are any racial disparities in the criminal justice system. Um, and in a certain way, he did, I think, comment on things on instances that had just occurred before there was due process, right? Like that all the facts and circumstances were not known. And we've talked about that on this podcast before, like how you, you really have to wait for like all the facts to come out before you can even make a comment anymore because it will be um, held against you. But what happened after that comment was murder. Like someone actually committed murder and intended to commit murder and took a sniper rifle and gunned down police officers. So you can't, Unless you conspire to commit murder or specifically solicit murder, like, for example, hire a hitman, you can't be criminally responsible for somebody else's murder, right? But we're not talking about criminally liable. We've already addressed that that's not going to be the issue. The issue is, should you have known better as the president? And regard to statistics, I believe it was Mark Twain who said, you have statistics, or no, you have lies, you have damn lies, and then you have statistics. And so they can be presented in any which way you want to prove your point. Uh, And so should, and I believe that most people, there are people out there who will say there's a correlation between his statements and then the shooting of those Dallas police officers. Uh, And so should a president think about that? And should they be held accountable when their actions, even though constitutionally protected and not criminal, resulted in that kind of action? Is that not what we are doing now? With Trump, we're saying, hey, look, you should have known better about where you were and what you were doing. And so therefore you should be impeached. I don't think it's the same thing in any way, shape or form. Like you can't know that someone like that would be the same as saying, well, we have to impeach Bernie Sanders because that. Well, now that you brought it up. (laughs) I'm not sure we should. No, go on. Well, I mean, Bernie Sanders, the, the guy who shot. Representative, uh, yes. was it Scalise? Right. Happened to have worked, been a volunteer for the Bernie Sanders campaign, I believe, at some point. So, how could you possibly? What has Bernie Sanders well, he ever said, some... said in any way that said, I, you know, I think we should go shoot sitting United States representatives? Like, that's not, it's not in any way the same thing. And I think, you know. But when you stir the pot in this highly, a contentious society that we live in, you know there's going to be negative consequences from it. I mean, I would agree that what President Obama said, it it seemed presidential when he said it. It wasn't like Trump at a rally. But still, and I'm not saying he was wrong. I'm just saying using it as an example, is that when you say things, you have to recognize the consequence of what you say. In this climate that we live in, there will be ramifications. Right, but murder and riot are different consequences, right? So you can't foresee the you can't foresee that someone's going to commit a sniper style murder. You can foresee a riot when you're speaking to a crowd of armed, riled up emotional people who, by the way, are riled up not because of hundreds of years of 
discriminatory treatment and ongoing disparities, they're riled up because you've been lying to them for the past couple of months and you've been telling them that the election was stolen when you know darn well that it wasn't and you're lying. Like, that <laughs> right, is right. a different. And I think, you know, armchair quarterbacking, would it have been better for Barack Obama to have said, I understand the emotion and the anger of people who f who are sitting, you know, on the back of hundreds of years of lynching and horrible treatment by law enforcement. I understand that that anger that they feel is righteous, but we cannot let that translate into violence. Like, sure, I'm sure that Barack Obama is like, wow, I wish I didn't have to answer questions about this anymore. I wish that had never happened. And I don't think in any way, shape or form, he wanted police officers to be murdered. Like there's no evidence that he ever would have wanted that to happen. Trump wanted this election to be undemocratically overturned. Now, whether by violence, I, you know, I don't, again, I don't know whether he specifically intended that, but he is a liar. He's been lying to people in order to get them riled up. And then saying, well, I, you know, I can't be, I can't be respond. That was completely unforeseeable. No, it wasn't. It was entirely right, right. foreseeable. They had guns. They're screaming and shouting. They had a noose and they're saying, hang my pence. Like this is foreseeable and you are responsible for directly creating, like Barack Obama did not create the racial disparities that we have in this country. Donald Trump directly created the situation that, you know, eventually led to this mob. It's completely different. It's completely different in my yeah. view. I, I definitely agree when you're looking at um, Trump and his actions. It does seem to be he lost sight of what he was doing. Uh, he just seemed to be a train off the, off its rails, whatever metaphor you want to use. But, um, yeah, I mean, you're, you're right. He, he's trying to put, push this narrative of fraud. I, I think he was actually thinking Pence was going to reject these um, these votes, these electoral votes. Is that really in Trump's mind? Was he actually thinking there was a possibility I don't know what was going through his mind. Uh, and so I, I must admit, I am on the fence right now on, on impeachment. Uh, well, actually, I, I do think he probably should have been impeached. And now as far as should he be convicted, let's wait and let's see what the evidence shows. But um, I, I do think he was utterly irresponsible in what he did. And it, it just boggles my mind that a, a, a sitting president would do that. But let's let's go don't there now. do you think the impeachment – like what I would be interested to hear your opinion on – okay, so we have the impeachment clause or clauses in the Constitution that kind of – you know, is is sort of vague as to what you can be impeached for. I mean, it right. says high crimes and misdemeanors, right? But we don't have a lot of precedent, at least when it comes to sitting presidents. And we do um, have precedent over what happened in Britain that it has been used in all kinds of situations. It's been used because I don't like your policy. It's been used because you, you took money from the king uh, in addition to money from your local legislature. So it's been used for a lot of different reasons throughout the, the centuries. Right. And I... Um, so the, the article of impeachment that was actually brought to the House and, and voted on and ultimately passed only talked about the riot and inciting the riot. And I'm a little bit curious and disappointed as to why it 
didn't include mention of the fact that, you know, perpetuating this lie upon the American people that the election was stolen because we're talking about a democratic election, it's a it's a violation of the oath of office to protect and defend the Constitution and uphold the Constitution. Like the, an elect, a presidential election, well, any election, but a presidential election is a constitutional pro- process. Right. I, I think it's actually in there. I, I uh, and that's not as a separate uh, cause of of impeachment, but it's saying that was one of the factors that led to inciting the riot. You were you you're creating this narrative that you knew where it was not accurate, uh, and you're doing it for some illicit purpose of denying the peaceful transfer of power, which we value in our country. I mean, whether you voted for the person or not, you, we value the peaceful transfer of power that is so important. Uh, yeah, there is a, a, a proper mechanism to allege fraud and to prove fraud, and, and they just failed to do so in this case. I mean, there's no other ands if buts about it. They had their chance to go to court and prove examples of fraud. They still have an opportunity now to go to court and to litigate fraud, even though it's not going to change who's the president, and it will change future elections. And, and so there, there's, there's ways to do that, but we value the peaceful transfer of power, and, uh, and that's not—obviously, he— um, Went, went against that. All right, so here a lot of different issues are present when it comes to impeachment. Obviously, we've we danced around the first one. Is this an impeachable offense? I, I think clearly everyone's going to be in agreement. Yes, this is. Even though this was constitutionally protected speech, arguably, uh, you, you got to know better. You're, you're in front of a rally uh, of people right there. You, in the context of everything going on, the president just simply has to know better. Uh, but here's a, a tougher issue. Can you impeach a former president? Now, I think that's an open issue. Uh, I know uh, yeah, some. Yeah, I don't know either. Some legal scholars are. I love it when you hear headlines and you re- and you go, dude, you don't have no idea what you're talking about. You're just <laughs> saying something to put a headline up there. It's not a slam dunk issue. The Constitution says the president shall be removed. It is subject to impeachment. We only have one president. Right. We don't have multiple presidents. Uh, as I said, if someone asks you, hey, um, uh, you know, uh, you're, uh, can you, you need to talk to the husband. They're not asking to talk to your ex-husband. They're asking to talk to your current husband. That is the one who is your husband. And so only a current sitting president can be impeached. At least it's arguable that the, the Constitution only provides for that. Uh, I know some people will say, oh, but there's also this idea that you can prohibit them from holding future office. Well, we're, that that's not clear that you have independent standing to bring it just for that uh, purpose. Um, but nonetheless, I do believe here's what's going to happen. Uh, at some point in time over the next 100 days after these impeachment articles get sent over to the Senate— uh, and there's going to be a trial. It's going to start off with a motion to dismiss uh, over right. the issue of you can't uh, impeach. So it is it is not a slam dunk issue yet. That is a litigated that will be a litigated matter. Any thoughts on that? You know, I, I agree with you. It's not a slam dunk issue. I definitely think it will be a litigated matter. And I do think the prerogative for those who support um impeachment and conviction thereupon is to prevent Trump from ever holding at least federal office again. And I'm 
the the question that came to my mind when I you know was reading about all of this is whether the Congress could pass some kind of resolution to prevent him from holding federal office. I don't I don't know the answer to that because assuming he's not going to get convicted of a federal crime and you know assuming that you know maybe he wins his motion to dismiss and it's adjudicated that he you know you can't remove a president from office who's no longer in office um, under the impeachment clause. Like, could is there another way to do that? Or at this late juncture, is the only way to prevent him from holding office again for people to just not want him to hold office again and not right. vote for him? So I don't know the answer to that. I understand the sense of urgency. And, you know, it is in my opinion, righteous. Like, I don't want him to ever hold office again. I, you know, so, and I think most people feel that way, but sometimes there's no way to guarantee that legally. And I, you know, I don't know the answer to that. And, you know, if there is, I, I certainly would imagine that it will be pursued, but I don't know the answer. And I don't know really that anyone knows the answer right now. We're all kind of just like, picking up the aftermath. Right, right. You, you know that there's a certain faction in the Republican Party that wants to support impeachment just for the purpose of him not being able to run for office again because they, there is a fear he's going to run again in, in four years and he's not going to win the, pres- the Republican primary. He might not even run the Republican primary again. He'll run as a third-party candidate, which would doom the Republicans' chances. So you know there is this idea out there amongst the Republican circles Yes, we need to impeach him so that that does not happen. Well, but let's go there because it's not it's also not a slam dunk that if the president is convicted of of committing impeachable offenses, that he can no longer be president. This is what the Constitution says. The Constitution says that uh, if he is convicted, uh, then he will be barred from holding any office of honor, trust or profit under the United States. They did not say you can't run for president. It is the office of presidency an office of honor, trust, or profit under the United States. Now, that phrase is so generic. I've done some research on it, and so far my research has proved inconclusive as to what the Founding Fathers meant by using that phrase. Uh, have, you done, have you done any research? Do you have any independent thought as to would being a president constitute an office of honor, trust, or profit? It didn't say elected office. It should be considered an office of honor, trust, or profit. Um, you know, I think it would have to be considered that. But that's, you know, another reason to ask the question whether there's another way, like a, a joint resolution or, you know, I don't, yeah, I don't, I don't really know could. the answer to that. Yeah, I really don't think Congress can just pass a law saying – uh, this person Trump can never be the uh, can never run for president. That would violate the Constitution. <laughs> I think it would have to be under the impeachment uh, provision, and um, uh, and so we. I'll have to do some more digging up and see if we can't find historically. Has this ever happened before? Has anyone ever been impeached and tried to hold an office? Or what did Alexander Hamilton have to say about what constitutes an office of honor, trust, or profit? I, I've seen the the Broadway play Hamilton several times. It's not any of those lyrics, though. It's kind of hard to follow those lyrics. Uh, but it, it's just, I, I'm not sure what that answer is. Uh, again, sometimes question. I mean, it, it is a really good question. And I think, you know, politics and politicians peddle in easy solutions to really complex problems. Right. right. 
And and the we can all agree that the division and the hatred that we're that's plaguing our society right now is a very complex problem. And to me, you know, this the solution to it might be simple, but it's not easy. And I think, you know, re- regardless of the result of an impeachment trial or a criminal trial, the solution ultimately, long-term, lasting is that we need to see each other as human beings and just treat each other better. Because I bet you there's a lot of people out there who you can ask, you know, those each one of those rioters, is that a human being with equal dignity to every other human being in America? And a lot of people would say no. Right, right. And then there's a lot of people on the other side who look at the Black Lives Matter protesters and would answer no. And to me, like, that is the problem. It's the problem. Like, they're a part of us, whether we like it or not, whether we want to admit it or not. We're all Americans. So, like, there's no political solution to something that is being experienced in the hearts and minds of so many of us. And that, like, the solution can only come, I mean, not to sound like, you know, too spiritual about it, but the the solution can only start there, like within individuals and families and communities to understand, you know, these people's actions may be criminal. They might be completely misguided as to what they believe is occurring in society or has occurred, but at a at the core, these are our fellow Americans, and we need to work on you know why there's so much hatred and why someone's parading a Confederate flag through the Capitol. Like that's you know we need to work on that. So I think the the po- the political process is going to play out how it plays out, but like there's not going to be a lasting change unless we go back to fundamentals. And it's, you know, that's not easy. It's simple, but it's not easy. Right. So I'm going to take you you one step further and I'm going to put you on the spot here because I think I have the answer for, for our country. And I've been, I've been given this a lot of thought of late and, um, you know, it's just, it's mainly in jest, but there is also a part of me that says, maybe this is doable. And here's what I'm talking about. Let's refocus this podcast uh, and uh, be a debriefing of the law, but let's also create our own political party. And uh, just hold on. Don't hang up on me yet. I think there is room in the middle where the broad swath of Americans exist and want to, ex- to operate in. We, we want to live under the broad swath in the middle. We do. We don't want to have the fringes of either party control the national conversation. We're tired of it. And I think if you were to look in the middle, there's over 50% of people that will agree on a majority of the issues. And so why not run as a third party middle-of-the-road candidate. Now, if we did this, we'd have to get someone with a bunch of money like Bloomberg to kind of fund this, uh, get someone who... Maybe they have to be you know, so wealthy they can fund this own campaign. But do you actually – and I'll give you some chance to think about this. Maybe we'll, we'll touch, this, touch more on this next week. But um, do you think you can get enough votes at the Electoral College, uh, win enough states to throw this to the Electoral College? If you had that political party that says, look, we want to cut through all the fog and be a united party. So the United Party of America, UPA, right there. What do you, what do you think? I am 100% on board with you. I think, you know, it does exist. So we still have the two parties, right? Um, but there are 
people in our federal government, like the Problem Solvers Caucus in the House of Representatives, of which my representative is a member, yay, um, that are doing that work and that are, you know, passing bipartisan reforms and policies and legislation, like it does exist. The problem is that these people get no airtime because they're not as, you know, they don't prey on knee-jerk emotional responses, like solving problem problems and consensus building is like step-by-step hard work and it takes compromise and it's not sexy, right? Like it's just really like nose to the grindstone work. But if you think about the policy issues, there are huge areas where we need movement where like 90% of Americans agree, 85% of like infrastructure, for example, common sense gun regulation, um, common sense. I mean, even if you go to something so divisive as like abortion policy, like a broad majority of Americans agree on some very simple common sense, you know, regulations that could be in place and then places where there should be more freedom between, you know, an individual and her doctor. So it's like even on those really divisive issues, there's a there, lot of common consensus. Ground. Yes. And it's like nobody is like paying attention to that stuff. And there's no legislation that's being passed, no policies that are in place because those people get no airtime. We're so focused on, well, this person said this and the the riots and this and that. And it's like, I agree with you. Like, I think the middle should be getting the most airtime and we should be talking about that stuff. But it's as long as it's social media and memes and all that stuff rules the day, you know, people still text their group texts like this meme and that meme and we that this is where the market of ideas needs to function like just stop right. stop now, doing we, that every we, individual just stop it we don't <laughs> like, even have time today so i'm not even gonna go down there but since you alluded to the 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 first of the free speech interest we gotta do a podcast almost exclusively on the issue of a free speech in america in the 21st century uh, that is another issue that is so misunderstood by by all sides. It just makes me want to pull my hair out. Uh, yeah. But we have Facebook and Twitter. Uh, we have private companies. We have public companies. We have monopolies. It is a very significant issue. And there is not an easy fix. I know a lot of people like to say, oh, it's an easy fix. They're private companies. The First Amendment doesn't apply to them. Not so fast. It's not that easy of an answer. Um, but nonetheless, we'll save that for a, um, a future podcast. All right. That might be a whole series. That's a very... Another very complex and nuanced issue. Huge that, issue. And yeah. it's so significant. I can't even probably think of a more significant issue than that when it comes to the our, our, the next couple of years in, in, in law. All right. Well, the Supreme Court is still in session. Uh, they're still holding cases. And so this last week, they, held a, uh, they heard argument on a case that I've actually been involved with the issues on this, this case for for probably 20 plus years. Uh, this has not been a, a, when I saw this case was pending for the Supreme court, I thought, Oh, we've been arguing and saying that for 20 years. I wonder who's behind this case. And then I realized my old firm is behind this case. They're the ones that are arguing it. And so, uh, I, it, finally we, we are in front of the Supreme court now, and this is the issue. Can you be in court when the only issue in court is $1? 
That, that's it. You're, you're arguing over whether or not the people on the other side of the aisle should pay me one dollar. Now, what, what are your thoughts on that? Like a true lawyer, I will answer, <laughs> it, it depends. Um, okay. You know, so there are cases where there's no money at issue, right? Like a declaratory judgment action or an injunction. Right. Um, and then there are cases where the law specifically says you can ask for nominal damages. I think, isn't right. defamation one of those Right. So, so hold on. So, so hold on. Let me uh, give you a little bit of context here since you were already kind of throwing in some ideas. Uh, and so this case started when uh, you had a Georgia Gwinnett College and they had a free speech policy that was horrendous. I think some Nazis uh, drafted this policy. So you can only only two. There are only two places in campus where you can engage in free speech. And then someone tried to do that and said, nope, you didn't apply in the right time. And in any event, they did not allow these kids to have free speech rights on this um, public college. And so a lawsuit was filed saying your free speech policies are antiquated. Uh, you know, you'd have to have a king in order for these to be enforceable. Uh, and so the, the, co- the college got together and realized, yes, our free speech policy is really bad. Uh, there's no way we're going to win in court. You guys are right. So we're going to change our policy. So at the very beginning, the lawsuit was valid. It was about declaratory judgment. It was, it was seeking an injunction, having the college stop their unconstitutional speech practice. But then after the lawsuit was filed, the college then changed its policy. So that no longer was something that could be argued in court. And so could, should the case go forward? Well, the plaintiff said, we still have a nominal damages claim for $1. And so does that change your thinking at all? Uh, yes, because shouldn't the case be moot at that point? I mean, That's the if, argument. did they originally bring the nominal damages claim or did they yes. amend their complaint after the fact to... Well, it probably be the, that claim. it'd be the same result either way. But it, it, normally, when we brought these claims, we I even teach a class called um, you know uh, constitution or litigating constitutional cases. We and I tell people you always got to bring a nominal damages claim because here's what can happen: the other side can change its policy on the eve of trial, and yeah, you think that's good. They're trying to move the case out. They're trying to avoid getting any kind of judicial ruling. You're going to want a judicial ruling, and so to keep your case alive, you need to have a nominal damages claim. So most of us always have, and since this was brought, I assume, by my old firm, they, um, uh, I say I assume because I don't know who actually brought the case. It was argued at the Supreme Court by my old firm, but I don't know who actually brought the case. Assuming it was my old firm, they most assuredly would have had a nominal damages claim from the beginning. That's really interesting because I always thought, um, at least in Supreme Court jurisprudence, that, you know, there was kind of an exception to justiciability doctrine for cases that were capable of repetition yet evading review. So maybe it's not moot if, for example, I think Roe versus Wade was decided under that justiciability doctrine because, you know, the the plaintiff, the original plaintiff in that case was no longer pregnant um, by the time it made, obviously, cases take years sometimes to make their way up to the Supreme Court and a pregnancy at its longest, length only last nine months. So the court said, well, we can still rule on this because the law is still in place. And exactly. you brought you know, this, a... this can keep happening, but no one would ever be able to make it to the Supreme Court because, right. you know, every plaintiff would have 
no longer have a claim, essentially. Yeah, you brought up a really good a doctrine that's of the capable of repetition yet evading review, but that is an exception to mootness. In other words, there still would be a case or controversy, but for the fact that now my client has given birth and is no longer pregnant, or my client has graduated and is no longer in college, and so therefore exactly. I'm out of it. So there is this doctrine of, of rep- is capable of repetition yet evading review. Now, that's an exception to mootness. That doesn't necessarily apply here because they changed their policy. This is a different kind of, of mootness. So this is this, almost like all parties agree, yes, your declaratory judgment action, your um, uh, claim for an injunction, it is moot, but still you have a claim for nominal damages. So should that claim only for nominal damages be allowed to go forward? And so he, should you be allowed to waste the court's time? And as you know, courts, uh, you know, they, they don't operate for free. I mean, <laughs> you pay salaries out That's to these judges, true. right? Uh, and when the only issue is at the end of the day, $1 is going to change hands. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I Like, I understand why the, the plaintiffs would want to keep pursuing the case because – you know, if you if you get an appellate opinion that essentially creates new common law in that area. Right. Um, but I don't you know, I I don't know. I mean, when is a nominal damages claim subject to dismissal or if the law recognizes such claims um, and it's a federal claim and it's not in any way affecting the subject matter jurisdiction of a federal court, like maybe it's that law that would need to be changed. So uh, Kagan, uh, Justice Kagan, uh, brought up a very interesting point. She said, well, wait a second here. There might be some value in nominal damages claims. And she referenced Taylor Swift. I always find it fascinating when the Supreme Court justices dabble into the culture. But she said, look, Taylor Swift filed this this lawsuit against someone who allegedly sexually uh, harassed, assaulted, groped uh, her. And so um, and she said, I don't want your money. So I'm just filing a lawsuit for one dollar because I want my rights vindicated in court. And so Kagan said, look, there is some real value there, at least to people whose rights were violated to have a court say, yes, your rights were violated and money is changing hands. So at least her comments gave some credence to the thought that um, you can't have a case for for $1 uh, or for, for nominal damages. But it, it, there are so many different opinions that were thrown out in court. It's kind of hard to tell which way the court is going to go. I will tell you what actually is one of the predominant reasons why you have this claim. It's for attorney's fees. Uh, and because you can't get your attorney's fees paid in, in one of these lawsuits, like you know, you're alleging a federal viol- a, a violation of your constitutional rights, Normally, if you get a court order saying, yes, your rights were violated, your constitutional rights were violated, the other side has to pay your attorney's fees. All right. You have you have to get the order, though. And so the other side moves the case out on the eve of trial. Then the the attorneys go home broke. And if that were allowed to continue, (laughs) here's the sad reality. A lot of attorneys would not be bringing these cases that they couldn't afford to. Right, the, these case cases might be doing real good and advancing society, correcting bad policies, but if they don't get paid at the end of the day, you know, attorneys they need to uh, pay the light bill, and, and so a lot of these. Uh, that's the reason why you put nominal damages in is to keep your attorneys' fees claim uh, alive, and so. But you still have to prove damages, right? Like if damages is an element of whatever claim you're bringing, you would still have to prove damages by a preponderance of the evidence, right? Like Taylor Swift, if it's a, a battery 
case that she's filing, like a civil case for battery. Right. You need to prove, you know, the elements of that claim. And the the last element is usually that you suffered harm. Now, in a battery case, it may be, you know, emotional distress or some kind of, you know, other cognizable mental harm, depending on what the law says in that area. But you still have to prove it. Um, and the fact that she's only her prayer for relief might only be one dollar because she doesn't need the money. Like that's her choice. But you would still have to prove the harm, in other right. words. So I would imagine that, you know, a party would be free to ask for a low amount of damages right. so long as they can prove harm. You know, Gorsuch actually uh, uh, echoed that thought. And so you and Gorsuch must be kindred spirits. Uh, <laughs> Gorsuch said. Give me a break. Come on. Lawyers are very creative when it comes to damages. You tell me you can't find any damages in this. Like uh, it, it costs you a dollar for a bus fare to get to that spot. Uh, you can argue some element of damages here because everyone admitted that even if you had very, 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 very small compensatory damages, that's still enough to go to trial. Uh, and, and no one would doubt that. And so Gorsuch said, why don't you just come up with some kind of claim for extremely small compensatory damages like a bus fare, and then you should be allowed to continue. But nonetheless, again, that's a— now that's In federal a, court, that's going to put you in mandatory arbitration, though, right? Like, that's another problem. I mean, so, sometimes—I guess you would still get the court order at the end of the day, but, you know, that the, the amount of— damages in question sometimes pushes you into either mediation or arbitration or some kind of alternative dispute resolution procedure that maybe right. would affect the attorney's fees issue. And I do not know what I'm talking about right now. I just, <laughs> <All right. laughs> I'm just saying, I know that in a lot of jurisdictions, when you ask for a low amount of damages, you actually right. don't get a judge to review your case, at least at first. Right, right. All right, let's. Um, that's on one end of the spectrum. One dollar of nominal damages. A decision is expected in June. Uh, on the other end, you had the Sydney Powell lawsuit, where she was sued. So she was one of the attorneys for Trump, and and she filed a lot of these lawsuits, and people thought she was crazy, and um, and she lo- argued that hey, these Dominion voting machines were bad. They were rigged. It's, it's all kind of fraud, uh, and so this the Dominion voting machine company sued Sidney Powell for defamation over her comments about how bad their voting machines were, and they are seeking not $1, but $1.3 billion. So, Mackenzie, what is your take on on the Sidney Powell defamation lawsuit? Okay, so I haven't read the complaint in this case yet, but um, my understanding is that the claim is based upon not what the plaintiffs alleged in lawsuits, but what Sidney Powell personally stated at press conferences, at least one press conference and possibly more than one, um, and, and the statements she made. And of course, as to the damages, Dominion will ultimately have to prove that it suffered you know, those damages, that it suffered actual harm, so that maybe certain states canceled their contract to use those machines, or, you know, I don't know what other kind of reputational harm, and sometimes in defamation cases there are punitive damages, so who who even knows, but it would have to prove the amount of damages. Um, but my understanding is that it's for statements made, right, that the machines were rigged, that the company was conspiring with Hugo Chavez to defraud the American or disenfranchise American voters um, and all kinds of crazy statements. So it's very interesting to me. I mean, it's it's a very <laughs> interesting case. And it seems like to me the company is kind of taking a stand and say like saying, no, you cannot 
make these outlandish statements about us that really damage our reputation. And I think the reputational harm has kind of played out in the public forum. Right. So here is the, yeah, I agree hundred uh, percent. Here is the deal. Uh, immunity. If you file a lawsuit, you have absolute immunity. People cannot sue you for defamation for what you uh, allege in that lawsuit. So a lot of people say, well, look, if they're uh, all these statements that she made, they were a part of legal proceedings. Isn't she immune from suit because these are all these are all part of legal proceedings? The easy answer to that is no, not necessarily. You see, while technically what you say in a pleading is immune from you're immune from liability, someone can't sue you for defamation for what you say in a pleading. If you make any statements to the press, that's not going to be uh, uh, you're not going to be immune from from damages for what you say to the press. And so that is where she got herself into into trouble. So. I don't know about the, I guess, follow that case and see how that comes out. They were some Right, wild. and that doesn't mean you can make false statements in pleading. So there are rules in the federal rules in every state jurisdiction, as far as I know, that, you know, punish people essentially for making right, right. knowingly false statements in pleadings. And that, and that covers the attorneys who sign the pleadings. So right. you are subject to sanctions if you do that, but it's not a defamation claim. Yeah, you're entitled, you're, you'll be subject to sanctions, discipline possibly if it gets referred to the state bar, but probably you're not going to be sanctioned $1.3 billion. Right. Uh, but right. <laughs> nonetheless, who knows? Uh, maybe we'll see a court to do that in one of these days. But um, all right, well, there you go. It's been a crazy week in law, a lot to unpack and uncover. So, uh, hey, maybe next week will be just as exciting. I don't know. Um, what I we have in not. store? Oh, we'll have a lot to unpack when it comes to free speech. The impeachment, I'm sure, will still be there. And then who knows? Maybe the desperate housewives will be suing someone. I have not a clue. But, we'll, hey, if it happens in the world of law, we'll be there to unpack it next week. So thank you so much, Mackenzie, and have a great week. Thanks for having me. You too. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, Please give us a five-star review. We need your love to help us continue highlighting the funnier side of the law. I want to give a special shout-out to our Vice President of Operations, Wendy Oster, without whom this entire operation would be a mess. Sean Wynn and 15.5 Features for making me sound way better than I actually do. Brooke Bolin for spreading the good word about us. And Ryan Kuhn and Paul Kuhn of Triplicity Marketing for our technical and computer support. 